you would, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. And I hope you'll forgive me tonight for preaching a message that I have preached before. So if you remember it, maybe it'll be good review for you. It will be for me. And if you don't remember it, or if it's your first time, then may it be fresh and new to you. But even those of us who have heard it or remember it may be fresh to us as well and an encouragement to us. So if you would please stand with me as we read God's holy word, Romans chapter 3. And we'll begin in verse 9. <clears throat> Romans chapter 3, verse 9, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. <coughs> Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we better than they? We Jews better than those Gentiles? No, in no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, he's been quoting the law, it saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law, is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus." whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. You may be seated. 
And let us cry out to God once more as we have come to his word. O God, we commit our hearing and speaking of your holy word to you. Help us now. O help me. I pray, O Father, that we would exalt your word. O Lord, that our hearts would be hungry and thirsty for every drop of truth that we hear and receive tonight, and that we would bear fruit because of it. Help, I pray. O Lord, save the lost. Strengthen your people. Build us up in our holy faith, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Our message tonight is from none righteous to all righteous. None righteous to all righteous. None in this entire world are righteous by the law, but all who believe in Christ are righteous in him. None righteous to all righteous. How does the God who made heaven and earth see you? What does he see? The great day is coming when you and I will stand before the holy God who created us. It will be an awful day, the day of judgment. What will be his opinion of you on that day? This book, the Bible, contains a preview of what the great judge sees. God sees your sin in contrast to his righteousness. Our sin is very dirty and his righteousness is very clean. He is pure and we are not. In this chapter of Romans, Paul asks, is there any benefit to being an actual physical ethnic Jew? In chapter 2, he had shown that self-righteous Jewish religion is condemned because those who profess to believe and walk in the law do not do so perfectly. A profession of holiness doesn't count, but a possession of holiness. So here in chapter 3, he asks, is there a benefit to being a Jew? And he says, yes, because the Jewish scriptures are God's holy inspired word, our Old Testament. And at chapter 3, verse 9, where we began reading, Paul points us to the gospel from those Jewish scriptures, from the Old Testament scriptures. And he moves through this theme of establishing the truth of man's sin and God's righteousness by faith from the Old Testament scriptures in Romans chapters 3, 4, and 5. But here in chapter 3, the portion that we've read, he proves man's sinfulness. And by man, I mean all men, women, children, boys, and girls, every single human being in this world. We are sinners. Paul proves the utter sinfulness of man and the righteousness from God given to sinners by faith as a free gift. And so we can summarize that reality by the statement, from none righteous to all righteous. None righteous by the law, but all righteous who believe in Christ. So we begin with none righteous. Both Jews and Gentiles are very bad, utterly defiled, utterly wretched in God's sight. If you're religious or irreligious, if you consider yourself spiritual or unspiritual, 
The righteous judge declares his sentence against you. By nature, you are sinful, defiled, evil. The Apostle Paul here declares in verse 9, both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. Under sin, what does it mean to be under sin? It means to be ruled by sin, overwhelmed by its force, unable to escape from its power. In Romans 7, 14, later in the book of Romans, Paul says of his human sinful nature, I am carnal, sold under sin. Under sin. Slave master sin has won the bargain. He has closed the deal. He has his prize. By nature, I belong to sin, and he's not a good master. He clamps his shackles over my wrists and says, you're mine. You'll do what I want, and it will be no good for you. Sin. Under sin. If you are not in Christ this evening, you are under sin. But who can free us from this slave master? The Lord Jesus Christ. There is a mighty conqueror who can deliver us. He saves those who are under sin. But how does God know that every single one of us are under sin? He has taken a census of sinners in this world, and he has found them all utterly sinful. God has taken his own census, his own assessment, He has made no mistakes, and he has come to one conclusion. Down to the last one of us, every single one of us, are not righteous. Let us look at verse 10. Paul says that we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles in verse 9 that they are all under sin. Verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. And from here through the next few verses, Paul quotes from Psalm 14. And he looks at Psalm 14 to get the results of God's census. God had done it hundreds of years before, and it still stands true. There is none righteous. God's righteousness demands perfect conformity on our part to his character. Righteousness is measuring up to God's perfect standards. It means being approved by God's law, free from the guilt that would make us subject to God's wrath, and possessing virtues, goodness, that would please and honor God. God is always righteous because he's the standard, and he always measures up to his standard because he is true to himself. When he looks at himself, he is the perfect reflection of what he holds up as to be right and good. He is righteousness. He is goodness. But we do not have God's righteousness. He created man good, but Adam and Eve, our first parents, fell into sin and carried their entire progeny, their entire descendants, all of us, with them to be under sin. We do not have God's righteousness, and Paul emphasizes it here in verse 10. There is none righteous, no, not one. Just in case you thought, well, I'm pretty good, and maybe I'm an exception 
to the rule. No, not one. And then he says, secondly, not only none righteous, he says there's none that understandeth. Many of us think we understand. We hear things, we see things, we comprehend them. But Paul says there is no one who gets it spiritually unless the Holy Spirit of God opens their hearts. By our sinful nature, there is none who understands. In the book of Isaiah, God gave a terrible warning to his people. He told Isaiah, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat and make their ears heavy and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. And Paul here is saying, this is universally true. Without the mighty working of God's Holy Spirit, every single one of us are those whose ears are closed, those whose eyes are shut. Our heart is fat. In other words, it is too full of its own things, and we do not understand. Jesus said, if the light that be in you be darkness, how great is that darkness? If you are outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you do not have that relationship with him, if you have not been declared righteous by him, if the Holy Spirit has not opened the eyes of your understanding, you're in darkness. You do not understand. But God has a remedy for you. Not only is there none righteous and none who understands, but there is none who seeks after God. Verse 11, the last part. There's none that understandeth, there's none that seeketh after God. And this is not to be surprising to us because the God who created us, who is righteous, we are in rebellion against Him. So why would we actually seek Him? Usually we seek our friends. We don't seek out our enemies. By nature, because of our sin, we are enemies of God. Oh, but while we were yet enemies, God sent his son to reconcile us to himself. Do enemies seek each other out only to kill each other? And that's what happened to our Lord Jesus Christ when he, as God in the flesh, was here in this world. Sinners sought him out to destroy him. Verse 12, all are gone <coughs> out of the way. They have declined, turned out of the path that God set out for them. Just think of the Garden of Eden. That life that God gave Adam and Eve in the garden was a wonderful path for them to walk on with God. But we have declined from that path. We've slipped out of the way and what a great fall that slip out of the way was. And there is none who walk in God's way anymore. And because we're out of the way, we're unprofitable. And that word unprofitable there in verse 12 in the middle of the verse is a strong word. It would, be, it would cut us to the heart if someone we greatly respected, maybe one of our parents or, or someone, you know, someone over us at work or whatever context we might be in, if someone said to us, you are unprofitable to me. God is saying that about us. He's saying, as sinners in this world, you're unprofitable. 
God created us for a particular purpose. He made Adam in his image and he gave him a special work to exalt God and to bring glory to him. But because of Adam's sin, he's unprofitable. He is not fulfilling God's purpose. His, the image of God is marred in him. And that's not just an unhappy accident. That is a moral failure. It's a crime before God to be messed up when God made you right. For God's man or God's woman to be unprofitable, marred, misshapen, crooked, messed up is terrible. And it's worthy of punishment because it's a moral problem. It's not just physical. It's that our hearts and our minds are turned against God. And because of all these things, because we are not righteous by nature, because there is none who understands, none who seeks after God, we're all gone out of the way, we've become unprofitable. Verse 12 at the end, he says, There is none that doeth good. No, not one. By God's definition of good, you're not it. I am not good by nature. You are not good. There's none who does good. No, not one. And this is something our community has a hard time taking in, accepting. When you speak to others and you say, the Bible says there is none good, people will often answer with, well, there isn't this action good? Isn't this example of philanthropy, of kindness to your community? Isn't this good? Well, an action can be good. But when God looks at a sinful man, a sinful man, woman, boy, or girl, and sees what they do and why they do it and the driving impulses of their heart and their goal in what they're doing, he says there is no one who does good. He sees no good deeds in this world. And so notice this totally takes away from us any hope of being saved by our own works. Because if there is none who does good, how can you even start to move in the direction of saving yourself? How can you even begin the journey? What is the first step of goodness? It's not something you can do. Totally not in your ability. So in God's census, what's the summary report? 100% bad and 0% good. And God is angry with the wicked Every day, there is none righteous. But not only has God (laughs) taken a census of this world, he has also moved in, he's honed in on every single wicked man, woman, boy, and girl in this world, and he has done an anatomy scan of us. He has not only seen the great mass of mankind, but he has honed in and looked at our, our bodies, our persons, how we are made up, and he gives us the report of our condition. Because not only does he say there's none righteous, no, not one, that there's none who understands, none who seeks after God. They're all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There's none who does good, no, not one, but their throat is an open sepulcher, an open grave. With their tongues, they have used deceit, The poison of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. That means they run after violence. 
They would love to get involved in hurting someone. Given the right circumstances, that is what your heart goes to. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known, and there's no fear of God before their eyes. It's put in very concrete language. It's as if God comes down and looks in your eyes. You can tell a lot by the eyes of a person. You can understand a lot about them. You can often tell whether they're telling you the truth. What's going on in their mind? If they say, I love you, you say, doesn't look like it right now. Or, I love you too. You can tell because of their eyes. And God is saying, no fear of God. He looked us in the eye. They don't fear God. No. No fear of God before their eyes. And so the heavenly physician, having taken the census and then honed in and looked at every single one of us and seen us as we truly are, and not in a, and I don't use this word in a, in a, in order to give us a wrong idea, but God sees us naked and open before him. He sees us in all of what we truly are. He doesn't see us according to the mask we put on before men. He doesn't see us according to how we would like to think we are, the clothes we put on to cover ourselves. He has provided clothes for us, but he sees us in our natural condition the way we really are. And we are not right. We are not good. We are defiled. Oh, my friend, if you are not in Christ, you are not right. You're distorted. You're messed up. And God gives his diagnosis in verses 19 and 20. Now we know, Paul says, now we know that what things soever the law saith, because he's just gone through the law, the Old Testament scriptures, and pulled out several important passages from the Psalms and from other, from Isaiah and other passages. He says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law. And he said we are all under sin. And in Paul's language here, it seems to mean to be under the, the legal authority of the law, to be under its curse. Now what things soever the law saith, it saith to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul is saying here that There is no hope in the law. As we start down law lane, we see a sign. It says, no through road. No hope in my efforts to keep the law. No hope in my good works. Jews and Gentiles are condemned by God's law. It declares what we should have been, what we should have done, and then it declares God's curse, God's judgment upon us. There is none righteous by God's holy law. And just think of the one who set that law, who has established it. It is God himself. It is the one who 
in his infinite glory and wisdom, created this entire universe. He created you and he created me. His law will not change. He is almighty. He is all-powerful, all-glorious. He reigns over this entire universe and he has given his law. And what does it do for us now in our sinful condition? It curses us. It declares us to be under God's wrath. It declares us to be not justified. It declares us to be guilty, liable to his judgment. If we knew what that meant, it would drive us to despair or to a savior. Under God's wrath, that is where hell comes from. Hell is the eternal outpouring of God's wrath against sin. There is none righteous by the law, none. But praise God, Paul continues, and he continues on the basis of the great works that God has done in this world. And the most glorious of all the works that God has done is that he sent his only begotten son to save sinners from their sins and from the law curse that they were under. There is none righteous by the law, but all who believe are righteous by Jesus Christ. So first we had none righteous, and secondly we have all righteous. Just when God, by his apostle quoting the prophets, has shut us out from any hope in the law, any hope in our own effort, any hope in what we can do, we see that we have nothing, are nothing, and can do nothing, then he brings us the glad tidings of joy which shall be to all people. When the Red Sea of our sinfulness has trapped us in on every side and we await the dread sentence from the wrath of God, God himself parts the waters for us. He delivers us. He proclaims peace to us. And he gives us a righteousness that no man can defile and no man can take away. Praise God for his mercy. Let us bless Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for his great love to sinners. Because our text here in front of us declares, and we will read it now, free justification by faith alone is God's good gift to bad people. Romans 3 and verse, I didn't write the verse, but it's, 21, we'll just begin in verse 21 because we're moving along through here. We'll start in verse 21 and we'll read up to 25 or so. 21, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference, no difference between Jews and Gentiles. That's a major question Paul is dealing with here as he is in this section. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission. That means the taking away the wiping away, the forgiveness of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. 
So he starts there in verse 21 with, but now. Our apostle Paul loves these dramatic transitions. And preachers love to point them out as well. The but. You've got the, the statement of sin and death and destruction and then, but. And that's exactly what we see here. But now. Here is the transition from death to life, from prison to the kingdom, from weakness to power, from despair. Oh, sin, if you see it rightly, will bring you to despair. But now he points you to hope, hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. We had none righteous, but now righteousness unto all and upon all them that believe. Righteousness unto all and upon all who believe is proved by the Bible, Paul says because it is declared by the law and the prophets. He says it's the righteousness without the law. In other words, it doesn't come from obeying the law, but it's witnessed by the law and the prophets. So he's using a little wordplay there. It's not by keeping the law, but it is declared by the law, the Old Testament scriptures. And it's not only proved by the Bible, it's provided by God provided by God himself. What a glorious mercy and grace of God that he would provide the deliverance from his own wrath, his own righteous judgment against sin. This righteousness is God's righteousness. Verse 21, at the very beginning, the righteousness of God. Verse 22, at the very beginning, even the righteousness of God. What is righteousness of God? God. Well, as we saw earlier, righteousness in general is measuring up to God's perfect standards. And we saw that we do not. We don't measure up. It means, right, to be righteous means to be approved by God's law, free from the guilt that deserves God's wrath and possessing virtues and goodness that please and honor God. But Paul is saying here, God gives us the righteousness of God. Those who were not good, not righteous, did not seek God, did not do good. God gives them his righteousness. The approval that God approves himself with. God approves of them with the approval he sees himself with. It's a declaration. It's a thing that God says about them the righteousness of God. Sinners approved with the approval that God approves himself with. But not only is it proved by Scripture and provided by God, this righteousness is procured for us by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 22, this righteousness of God is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there's no difference. Verse 25, he says, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Verse 26, God is the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. My friends, don't try any tricks to get God to treat you as righteous. The approval that God approves himself with is placed on your account when you believe in Jesus. When you believe in Jesus. 
What is the basis of God considering a poor, wretched sinner to be righteous, approved with the approval he approves himself with? The work of Christ alone. What is the means or the occasion of God considering that sinner to be righteous? It's based on the work of Christ, but the occasion of it is when he believes, when she believes on the Lord Jesus. Then spend your time believing in Jesus. Don't be satisfied with doing some great religious actions to try to get yourself to be accepted before God. Consider his promises. Consider his declarations. Consider his commands to come to him and believe the Lord Jesus Christ. Believing is not a leap in the dark. Believing is a spirit-empowered thing. The Bible teaches us that we must be born again before we can do anything that God sees as a true spiritual work. But the Bible does not say, wait until you feel born again. It says believe. And then it also tells us they won't believe until they're born again so that we can be humbled and realize, wow, it is God himself that is my only hope. And that should drive us to what? Trying to figure out God's mind? No. Trying to figure out the counsels of eternity? No, it should drive us to cast ourselves upon the living God. To say, he has promised, I believe it. I don't know if I believe it. Okay, let me look at the promise. What does he say? Ah, he says, whosoever will. He says, repent. He says, here is my son. He says, come. So, I believe it. I trust him. I think it was Spurgeon that said, on the gate of salvation, is something like this, it's not an exact quote. On the gate of salvation, when we're outside being called in, it says, whosoever will may come, repent and believe the gospel. And when we go through and we look back, it says, elect from the foundation of the world. We, our job is not the electing. That's God's part. We let him figure that out, and he, he's already done it very well. Our part is to believe. The Holy Spirit does work it in us, but he has commanded us to believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But not only is righteousness upon all and unto all, <laughs> unto all who believe proved by the Bible, provided by God and procured by faith, it is purchased by Jesus Christ. And we've already mentioned it, but now we need to think about it. This righteousness was not free. It is given freely, but it, is, it was not free. It was purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ by his life blood. It flowed from that love that we heard about on Sunday, that he came into this world, became a man, lived that, purchase, that perfect life, and then gave his blood to purchase our redemption, to purchase our righteousness. But that is on the basis of his life of obedience, where he earned for us that active righteousness. We call it the active obedience of Christ. He earned our righteousness. And then in his death, he suffered the penalty we should have suffered. 
Paul uses two words in verses 24 and 25 here in Romans chapter 3. He says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. So we see those words, redemption and propitiation. How did Christ procure or purchase this righteousness for us by his redemption and his propitiation? Redemption. Think of Boaz in the book of Ruth. He was the kinsman redeemer of Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Ruth was not an Israelite. By nature, she did not own any land in Bethlehem. She had no right to worship God in the Jewish tabernacle or to be a part of God's covenant people and be counted in their genealogies and be the, the one who would give ultimately be in the line of David and of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But she married a man from Bethlehem, Malon, and that marriage gave her a legal right but after her husband died, Boaz took her under his wing. He paid her debts and gained her and her property. Boaz was her redeemer. Now his land was hers and hers was his. His rights in Bethlehem became her rights. She belonged to him and he belonged to her. Redemption. Christ is our redeemer. And all we brought to the marriage was sin and need and debt. He brought cash and plenty of it to the relationship spiritually. He brought all of his merit. He brought all of, he, he came in this world as the son of God and lived, as the Bible says, without sin. His righteousness of God was put on our account and our sins were put on his. In all his living, dying, rising, and ascending to heaven, he was our mediator, our redeemer, our Boaz, our kinsman redeemer. What kind of righteousness did he bring? The righteousness of God himself. The righteousness, the approval that God approves himself with. He lived that righteous life that merited God's pleasure and satisfaction with us. No longer can we say there is none righteous, no, not one. Now there are many righteous and it is a wonder to all the angels and should be to us that they can look down at this world and say, God considers them righteous. How is that? The righteousness of Jesus Christ is put on their account. Righteous because he lived for us. He died for us. He forgave our sins. He cleansed our stains that were legally recorded in God's record book. And so now we can't say, I'm just an old sinner. We can't say, Ruth can't say, I'm just a Moabitess. She can say it in remembrance of who she was, just as we can say, I'm just an old sinner in remembrance of what I was. But I am no longer. Now I am righteous. Praise God. Praise our great king. We're no longer a criminal in God's court. We're the spouse of King Jesus. He's the king of the universe. And there's no better match than the one between he and me, between he and you, he and us. Our righteousness is God's righteousness. 
But Paul not only calls it redemption, he also calls it propitiation through faith in his blood. Verse 25, propitiation, whom God set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. This word propitiation, it means a payment or sacrifice that turns away wrath. And in this case, God's well-deserved, righteous anger against sin. But it's illustrated for us in the Old Testament scriptures with that golden box that was put into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle of Israel, the Ark of the Covenant. Inside that box, there were the tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments, representing God's righteous demands. Outside the box and above it were those, those golden cherubim guarding it, maybe reminiscent of the cherubim, the angels that were guarding the way to the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword, lest the unholy should go back into the holy place. In other words, it's the place of God's presence, the place where God's righteous demands must be kept intact completely. The Ark of the Covenant was kept in a special room with a thick curtain, the Holy of Holies, and into it the high priest alone would go once a year on the Day of Atonement. No one else could go. He was the only one that went. And what did he do there? He sprinkled the blood of the sacrificial animal on the lid of that golden box, the Ark of the Covenant. And the top of that ark in our English Bibles is translated as mercy seat, the place where God's mercy was secured for the people of Israel. But the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures, called the Septuagint, translated that word mercy seat with the same word that we have here as propitiation. And I'm not a Greek scholar, but that's just a very informative thing to read. Because what we find is that that symbol helps us to understand what Paul means when he says a propitiation through faith in Christ's blood. When Israel had sinned, when they worshipped other gods, they made idols, they broke the Sabbath day, they did not honor father or mother, they killed, committed adultery, stole, lied, coveted. On what basis could the holy God still dwell among those people? It was by the blood being sprinkled in that symbolic place. And when our blessed Lord Jesus hung suspended between heaven and earth by the nails on that cruel cross, as he shuddered in agony, he cried, It is finished! And the veil in the Holy of Holies in God's temple in Jerusalem tore from top to bottom, and the mercy seat was made open! It was unveiled. No priest ever needed to sprinkle blood there again. Maybe they did. Out of force of habit, we don't know. We're not told because there was no need for them to ever do it again. Christ's blood paid the price for sin and reconciled sinners to God. And the book of Hebrews says, so come in. Come to the holy place. Come, come to God's presence. Come to his footstool and make your supplications to him. Don't stand outside anymore. The blood has atoned and made the way open to where in the old system of things that God was using to teach us, 
there was only one man allowed to go and do a symbolic act. Christ has done the work and the way is open. Go in. Go in. A propitiation. A sacrifice that turns away the righteous wrath of God. But also this righteousness is approved by God the Father. This is not some Jimmy Rig that the Son of God figured out. Unfortunately, I heard a preacher once say, well, the Father was angry and the Son that came along and kind of was like able to secure some kind of compromise. No. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are in beautiful, perfect harmony. From eternity to eternity. And this righteousness unto all and upon all them that believe is the Father's idea, the Son's idea, and the Holy Spirit's idea. And the Father is very pleased with it. He approves it. And it doesn't just mean he was like, yeah, okay, I'll sign off. No, this is his idea. He predestined his people from all eternity for this. Before the foundation of the world, it says in Revelation that the blood of the Lamb was spilled. That's an amazing statement. No shoddy, unjust, immoral method of sweeping sin under the, <coughs> under the rug would be allowed by the Father. Paul says this is no fly-by-night deal going on here. It is a genuine transaction. Verse 25b, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. So when Christ hung on that cross and paid that price and then rose again from the dead and ascended up into glory, the Father was saying, see, I had already prepared for the forgiveness of all those sins that I overlooked all those hundreds of years. I really didn't overlook them. I was just. And I am the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. So when David was forgiven of his sins and he could say, blessed is the man who's forgiven and God doesn't impute sin to him. Was it just because like the Muslim Allah had just said, I forgive you on the basis of nothing because his will is supreme and he can say, I forgive you? No, it was that he had provided. He would provide. He is both just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. God's righteousness is pure and protected by the work of Christ. Verse 26, to declare, I say, to, to, to publish widely to all the world that God is righteous. At this time to declare his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So, we've taken our journey from none righteous to all righteous. All who believe in Christ are justified, declared righteous, as God himself is righteous. Let's apply this to ourselves. If you are not in Christ, if you are not believing in Christ, and I hope everyone, whether you're very young or very old, hears my voice and believes these words of God. If you are outside of Christ, you are hopeless in yourself. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you have a sure hope of being righteous with the righteousness of God, the righteousness with which he approves himself. You will have a firm hope. Your condition will be the best possible in this world and in the world to come. 
the righteousness of Jesus will be credited to your account. You can be approved before God with the approval that he approves himself with. Christ has completed the glorious work. He cried, it is finished. You have no excuse. This is the word of God that we have read. Trust it. Believe its declarations. That is what he commands you to do. Have you believed in Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Don't just adopt a little religion. Don't just learn to repeat religious phrases, but believe in the living Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again. You will see him, and I will too. And Christians, my brothers and sisters, do not try to justify yourself by the law. Now, this can be somewhat difficult for us to discern in our hearts and minds because the law is vital for us. It is a rule of righteousness for us, but it is not the power by which we please God. The law helps us see God's holiness and perfection, and we should marinate ourselves in the law of God. What, do, what does the New Testament do? If you just kind of take a, a bird's eye view of the various books in the New Testament, especially the epistles, and you look at what Paul does, for example, in Romans here, he talks about the great works of God from Romans 1 through 11, and then in chapter 12, he starts to apply the law to believers. He starts to tell us how to live in righteousness. And so we have salvation, and then we have a role for the law in the Christian's life, but we need to be careful. How are we right with God? How are we pleasing God? How, what is my standing? What's the basis of my standing with God? How do I, when I come to pray, in whose name do I pray? I don't mean what do we say at the end of the prayer, in Jesus' name, amen. I mean, am I consciously looking boldly at the face of the King of kings because I know that he has made me righteous before him? Or am I coming and saying, well, you know, I messed up a little bit, but I'm going to try really hard now. It's ridiculous. Remember, in yourself, you're still not good. But by the grace of God, the merits of Christ put on your account and the power of the Holy Spirit, he has regenerated you. He is sanctifying you. So you are good now in, a, in that sense, but not by your goodness. So don't bring it to him. It's not perfect and it's not acceptable. If you bring it and say, look, God, I did." A, you can do it like a child who says to his father, look, I'm doing something for you. He'll, he'll receive it as a, with a childlike trust, but he won't receive it if you say, look, here's my good deeds. I'm doing better. Receive me. No. He'll say, no, I receive you in Christ. I receive you because you're my child, and then I reward you for your childlike obedience in faith and love. So we must strive to obey And actually, that striving to obey demonstrates the reality of our faith because if you don't love obedience to God's law and seek to obey it, you're not justified by faith, the New Testament tells us. But in our love for God's law and obedience to it, don't look for peace in the law. Don't look for rest before God in the law. <coughs> Real faith is a working faith, a fighting faith, a living faith, but the law is not the basis of our rest and hope and gladness and joy 
before God. Christ is, and he never changes. His righteousness is perfect, and his propitiation was sufficient. His redemption was complete. Rest in him and strive for the glory of God. With your your legal situation dealt with and done and secure, you can rest peacefully in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and then labor for God's glory. Labor in obedience to him. Strive to honor him knowing that he's pleased with you. No flesh will be justified in his sight by the law. Not even Christian flesh. So now, with the righteousness of God himself upon your account, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Serve the Lord with gladness. If Christ lived for you and died for you, then go out and live for him and die for him too. The lamb is worthy, and now he owns your every breath. And all you are and have, don't hold back anything from your heavenly Boaz. Give it all to him. If you were a poor Ruth with nothing in the world, then your new husband has given you a great living. Go and live for him and with him for joy, with joy. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, our Father in heaven, we praise you for the truth of your gospel. I pray that it would go down deep and be like, like a, a, a great watering that goes into the dry soil of our lives and gives us health and strength and fruitfulness and vibrancy for your glory. Lord, work in us. Help us to praise you more. Help us to serve you more. Help us to strive harder for your glory, but to never strive to be right with you, but to rest in the work of Jesus Christ and to trust his righteousness. Bless my brethren, my brothers and sisters. Lord, preserve them this week. Encourage their hearts in you. Give them joy in serving you and protect them from the evil one, we pray. For Christ's sake, amen. Please stand. Our benediction is from Romans 5. Or rather, maybe not so much a benediction as an encouragement. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, being justified by faith, as we heard about tonight, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.